Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Good morning to those of you who are just uh, joining us online. Welcome to Crosspoint. Uh, a special uh, shout out and welcome uh, to those who, uh, of us who are new this morning. We're so glad you could be with us and join with us in worshiping and uh, in the teaching time this morning. Uh, hey, I want to begin this morning by asking a question that has been puzzling me for several weeks. I mean, this is a type of question that keeps me up late at night. It's the type of question that if I can get an answer to this question, I know that it is going to be earth-shattering, life-changing. So here's the question I've been wondering about for the past little while. Here it is. Why are people, or why is everyone hoarding toilet paper? And I'm sure you are wondering this question as well. Um, and you know what? The truth is, there is actually no simple answer to this question. As it turns out, panic buying is actually kind of normal. Um, so why then are people hoarding toilet paper in particular? Uh, well, people have come up with a lot of different theories about this, and it's actually quite interesting. I mean, some will say that it's just retail therapy gone mad, so it just scratches an itch that's there. Uh, others will say that toilet paper represents one of our most primal needs for safety and security, kind of like that bottom rung on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So when we go out and we snatch toilet paper, it's our way of taking control of a world that's essentially out of control. Okay, well, then there are others who theorize that that disappearing toilet paper is actually just more obvious in grocery stores because they're big bulky items. And so uh, the gaps in the shelves are hard to miss and the big lumps in our carts are hard to miss. And when people see those gaps and they see those lumps, they take notice and they said, oh, maybe I should buy some more. Uh, then, of course, there is just the idea of mob mentality. Uh, when other people do crazy things, it gives us permission to do crazy things. And then, of course, the news gets a hold of it, blows it up, and it just takes off and gets worse and worse and worse. So anyway, it, it could be any of these causes, or it could be all of these causes kind of working together to create a perfect storm, and therefore we have a shortage of toilet paper in our society. Now, I, I've also been wondering, though, I've also been wondering, and this is more of a personal question, and the question I have is, how much toilet paper is actually enough for me? Um, and I'll admit, uh, we're, we're one of those households that uh, grabbed a little bit of extra Charmin early on in this crisis. Uh, you might say that we are well stocked with toilet paper. Um, so, so I've kind of been wondering, you know, when do I stop? You know, because every time I go to a grocery store, there's always an opportunity to buy a little bit more toilet paper. So when does this madness stop for me personally? When can I be content with the amount of toilet paper I've actually got? Well, yesterday, it's interesting, I discovered a website 
that will actually calculate how much toilet paper you actually need. You can check it out a little bit later. It's howmuchtoiletpaper.com. And, and it's actually quite a sophisticated calculator, and it has a number of different parameters and variables involved in this calculation. But here's what I discovered. Okay, here's what I discovered. For a household of five people, there's five people in my house, each person visiting the toilet twice a day with three wipes per trip, averaging five sheets per wipe, Okay, we're, we're folders, not waters. Okay, um, it turns out that I have enough toilet paper in my household for 164 days. That's almost a half a year of toilet paper sitting in my house. So I know how much toilet paper I have. I know how long it's going to last. But I still don't have an answer to the question. How much toilet paper is enough for me? When will I finally be content with my toilet paper supply? Which brings us to today's topic. Today we're talking about contentment. And thank you for listening to this lengthy introduction. See, during this COVID-19 crisis, COVID, uh, contentment might seem something that's kind of far off for each and every one of us. I mean, I mean, these are hard times for a lot of us, especially for those who have lost jobs or, or maybe you're spending a lot of time in isolation. Maybe you're, you're at home and you're, you're by yourself and you've been by yourself quite a lot. Um, most of us, have, we've lost a lot of freedoms that initially we had taken for granted, you know, like spending time with people we care about or, or doing the, some of the things we love, like going to the gym or eating out or camping. And some of us, I know, especially parents, you, you, you are just needing a break. You just want some personal space. And I think the question all of us might ask is, is it even possible to find contentment in the midst of all of this? Well, this morning we've, we've come to the final portion of the book of Philippians. We've been studying this for quite a while. This is week number 11 in the letter. And uh, here in the letter, the Apostle Paul turns his attention to this very topic. He begins to talk about contentment. And uh, before I dive into that, though, I want to just remind us a little bit about the backstory of the book of Philippians, especially for those of you at home or just kind of joining in with us for the first time. Uh, so the, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he's writing this letter. It's a 2,000-year-old letter. He's writing to this church in Philippi. This church in Philippi uh, is a church that he cares deeply about. He has a really tight relationship with them. As a matter of fact, he helped to plant this church. But Paul's not writing the letter from Philippi. He's writing it to Philippi. Paul is actually you know, about a thousand miles away in another city, and the city is Rome. And the reason why Paul is in Rome is because he's, he's under house arrest for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's got guards outside his door. He's inside. He's chained to the floor. He cannot leave. Once in a while, people can come and visit him. Um, but what is more is he's actually awaiting trial for his beliefs, and he doesn't know whether he's going to live or die. Now, one of the key reasons why Paul actually writes this letter to the church in Philippi is to thank them for a gift that they sent to Paul. See, the thing about being a prison in Rome back in that day is, is, is uh, the prison system didn't provide anything for anybody. If you were awaiting trial and you were in prison, you basically had to provide for your own needs or you had to rely on other people to help pay for your needs. Uh, so if you didn't have any money, you didn't have any food. The, that was just the, the basic rule of being in a, in a Roman prison. So the, the Philippians had sent a man to Paul. His name is Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus brought a gift of money to Paul to help uh, pay for some of Paul's supplies while he was in prison. So basically, uh, part of this letter is, is just a thank you note to the Philippians for the gift that they had given to the Apostle Paul. So this morning, if you, if you have a Bible handy, I'm going to read from Philippians 
chapter 4 and verses 10 to 20. And I encourage you to follow along on home or at home. We're going to have it on the screen. Um, and as we do that, we're going to begin to dive into this very topic of contentment. So here's what the Apostle Paul writes, starting at verse 10. He said, I write, rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. And you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And, and you Philippians yourself, you, you know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. I mean, even in Thessalonica, you sent me uh, help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Hey, uh, I wonder if, if wherever you're at, uh, if you could just pray for me for a moment. <laughs> Father, thanks for your word. Thank you that um, you love us and you want to help us to find contentment in this day. And God, I pray as we, we just probe into your word that it would become alive to us through your Holy Spirit, that you would prod our hearts, that you would encourage us, you'd lift us up, uh, you'd convict us, God, um, that in all of this, as we, as we go through this, uh, Jesus, you'd make us more like you and you'd show us uh, the right way to live, uh, particularly in these days that we find ourselves in. Thanks, God, you care enough to, uh, to be in our worlds and in our lives. We give you thanks now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the key verse that, uh, you, and you've probably picked up on this, but that's going to basically launch our conversation this morning is verse 11. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, you think about that. I mean, that's a pretty high bar that Paul sets. I mean, he says, Every situation, in every situation, he has learned how to be content. Now, it, that in the original language, that word content, it actually means contained. That's the literal meaning of the word. Uh, so the idea of contentment <clears throat> is uh, about being able to have control of, over your private world without being disrupted by your public world. So it's about having this inner peace, this inner tranquility. So your private world is essentially contained and it's not guided or misguided by your outside circumstances. Now, it's interesting that that Greek word that Paul uses, it's the only time in the New Testament this word actually shows up. Uh, but it was a favorite word among the Stoic philosophers of Paul's day. Uh, now, Stoicism was um, one of the more popular philosophies in the Greek and Roman world. Uh, today, when we talk about a Stoic, we refer to somebody who's kind of indifferent to pain or pleasure or grief or joy. Uh, but in Stoic philosophy, they, they believed that a, that a virtuous person, someone who was truly virtuous, was one who was unaffected by outside forces or experiences. So the, so the, the best so Stoic sages were resilient in uh, hard times, emotionally resilient. 
Now, if you want a good example of a stoic kind of person, I think a modern example that, that most of us knows is Spock from Star Wars, okay, uh, Star Trek. Oh, sorry, Trekkies, got me there. Um, so as a Vulcan, uh, Paul, uh, Paul, <laughs> Spock was purely logical. He was unmoved by emotions. He was unaffected by circumstances. And apparently Gene Roddenberry, when he created the Spock character, he had stoicism in mind when he thought of Spock. Now, Paul was not a Stoic philosopher, but he borrowed the word that the Stoics liked to use. And what we're going to discover is that there was actually a radical difference between Paul's contentment and a Stoic's contentment. But there's something else worth noting from this verse in verse 11. You notice that Paul said that he had learned to be content. In other words, contentment just doesn't come automatically. It's not something you just fall into and then you have it forever. As a matter of fact, it's probably not something that you have uh, all the time, but rather it's something that you continue to grow in. Paul says he had to learn contentment in the arena of life. So since the day that Paul began following Jesus Christ to the day that he found himself in a Roman prison, Paul was in the school of contentment. But now Paul was prepared to share his secret with the Philippians. Now, I don't know about you, but I would love for Paul to take us to school this morning. I want to learn more about contentment. I want to learn more about how I can find contentment in these days in which we're living. So I want to invite you this morning to walk through this final portion of Paul's letter together. And as we do that, I'm hoping that we're going to, we're going to be discovering three keys to contentment. So here's the first key. Contentment comes by focusing away from circumstances. So when you think about it, I mean, I mean, Paul's circumstances did not inspire contentment. Remember where Paul was writing from, right? He's, he's in prison. He's under house arrest. He's in self-isolation. He's under nail-biting circumstances. He experienced deprivation. I mean, there was no food. There was no Wi-Fi. There was no toilet paper, which kind of gets the imagination going here, okay? But the, here's the thing is Paul, Paul did not hyperfixate on his problem. Instead, he learned to be content, he says, in any and every circumstances. You might say that Paul was a thermostat and not a thermometer. See, the thing about a thermometer is, is it's, a thermometer is only changed by its environment, but a thermostat changes its environment. You know, if Paul says in verse 12, he says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing, facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. See, what's clear is that Paul was not focused on his circumstances. And I think most of us know the reality is that much of the stuff that we worry about isn't actually even worth our attention. In the grand scheme of things, most of the stuff that we are preoccupied with ultimately will not last. Most of it will be forgotten. You know, there's a, there is another famous text where the Apostle Paul writes about contentment. And it's in his first letter to Timothy. And I just want to look, us to look really quickly at what Paul said there. First uh, Timothy 6, he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Contentment, Paul says, is great gain. It's, it's priceless. Because, and especially if it's matched with godliness. What is godliness? Well, it's essentially Christ-like character. So if you can learn to be content, and if you can learn... To be like Jesus, you're better off than winning the lottery. You have more than all the money in the world. But did you notice why Paul thinks that contentment is important? Here's what he says. He says it's because we brought nothing into the world and we won't take anything with us. 
So essentially he's saying, listen, we went, came into the world naked, we're going to leave the world naked. And most of the things that we worry about will not last. They are temporal. They are not eternal. That's why Jesus said, you know, don't store up for yourself treasures here on earth where moth and rust decay. Instead, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. There are, there are more important things in this life that we could focus our attention on. As the old saying goes, you will never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. But the one thing that will last, the one thing that will last uh, after all is said and done is godliness. Your Christ-like character. Godliness with contentment, Paul says, is great gain. And so a key to contentment is essentially just taking our eyes off of our stuff, reprioritizing our attention. You know, Jesus taught this to his disciples in, in, in Matthew chapter 6. He talked about, he says, you know, you, you shouldn't worry. I mean, you shouldn't get bent out of shape about food or drink or clothes. Uh, I want to look at just how he concluded this teaching section with his disciples about worry. Here's what he said. He said, therefore, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You know, what's, 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 what's most mind-blowing about, about these scriptures here is that Jesus was actually speaking to people who lived in an agrarian society. I mean, most of them were farmers. They were fishermen. Uh, they basically lived hand-to-mouth. I mean, they understood the term daily bread very, very vividly, okay? Uh, they had to trust God that their crops would fail. They had to trust God that the drought wouldn't come in and destroy everything. They didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have running water. Likely, they only had one set of clothing for each of them. And Jesus was telling them, don't get caught up in food, don't get caught up in drink, and don't get caught up in clothing. You know, I, I wonder if, if any of us, um, before COVID-19, Maybe got a little bit steamed at the barista because our flat white wasn't made just right. Or how many of us walked into a closet full of clothes and said to ourselves, oh, I just got nothing to wear. Or, or maybe you were sitting at a restaurant and you're ordering food and the menu is just huge and you're, you're just, you're paralyzed, paralysis by analysis because you've got all these amazing options to choose from on your food menu. Can any of you remember before COVID-19 when this was our reality? You know, I've got to admit, I, I am embarrassed to think about what Jesus would say to me when I'm, when I'm freaking out about shoddy Wi-Fi and not being able to have a haircut when I want it. Friends, Jesus invites us to refocus. There's a way, he says, to set aside worry and to step into contentment. And it begins with simply understanding and accepting who God is. Did you notice that Jesus said, our, our Heavenly Father cares about us a great deal. And he knows what we need. And that as we follow him and as we seek after him, he will provide for our needs. And so we can be content. Contentment ultimately comes from not focusing or fixating on our needs, but instead by focusing and fixating on our father who cares about us a great deal. And so I am constantly being drawn back to this question. Rob, what are you focused on? What are you focused on? You know, I wonder if there might be just be a a silver lining in this current crisis. You know, I think the one thing COVID-19 has done is to help flatten the curve of the comparison trap 
that we so often get caught up in. You know, maybe, maybe in this season we can now ditch our misplaced assumptions about what is actually the good life. I mean, I, let's, let's be honest. I mean, when everybody's kind of doing the same thing, we're far less concerned about buying the, the, the latest outfit or sharing the most exotic experiences that we can. I mean, you can only take so many pictures of bad hair and people doing toilet paper Olympics in their homes, right? Let's be honest. So maybe, maybe this is a great time a great season for us to learn contentment, to take our stuff, eyes off our stuff, to take our eyes off of our phones and off of our fears, but rather to focus, on our circumstance, uh, focus away from our circumstances and turn to the guy who really cares for us, the God of this universe, someone far greater and far better than all of the stuff that we have around us. Maybe this is the time for us to do that. Well, that's the first key. But here's the second key. Contentment comes by finding strength in Christ. Paul writes this in verse 13. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, see the, the, the key to Paul's contentment, the secret to his contentment, involved more than just focusing away from circumstances, but it, rather it was about turning toward Christ and finding strength in him. This is actually where Paul parted company from the Stoics of his day. Uh, there is a world of difference between Paul and Spock or Seneca or Epictetus. See, the Stoics believed that contentment ultimately came from within a person, but Paul's contentment comes from without. The source of his contentment, contentment comes from Christ. So this is not a self-sufficiency that Paul has, rather it's a Christ-sufficiency. His sufficiency came from a life-giving relationship that he had with the living Son of God. I mean, if you go back earlier in the letter, you remember Paul wrote this. He says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So Paul's life ultimately came from a living relationship with Christ. This was the source of your strength. Now, now, when we think about verse 13, you know, I, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And when we think about that verse... Uh, we're pretty familiar with that verse. As a matter of fact, this is a, this is a very popular verse among Christians and among non-Christians. It's the kind of verse that people like to quote. It's the kind of verse we, we like, to, like to put on our coffee cups or on our, on our t-shirts. Some people even tattoo this verse on their bodies. But it's also one of the most misused and misunderstood verses in the Bible. Um, some of you may be old enough to remember the, the long-anticipated showdown between Evander Holyfield and Mike Tyson back in 1996. I realize some of you were not even born then at the time. Uh, but listen, when, when Evander Holyfield got into the ring with Mike Tyson, he had this verse stitched into his trunks. So for Holy, uh, Holyfield, this verse essentially meet, uh, meant, I'm going to beat up Mike Tyson through Christ's power. And of course, the, the, the reality is in that fight, he did, he did beat up Mike Tyson in the 11th round, one of the biggest upsets in boxing history. So he, he believed, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, and that includes knocking out Mike Tyson. But here's the thing, then not long after that, Holyfield faced off in another fight uh, with a man named Lennox Lewis. And he still had that verse etched into his trunks. And in the fight against Lewis, uh, the first fight against Lewis, it actually came up to a draw. But in the second fight against Lewis, still wearing the trunks, Lewis beat him up and beat him up pretty good. So can we really do all things through Christ who strengthens us? That's the question. I mean, really, all things through Christ who strengthens us? Can you rob a bank through Jesus who strengthens you? 
Can you pull the ears off of a puppy through Jesus who strengthens you? I mean, we can't just universalize this verse and say it applies to all things. That's just not good exegesis. So this isn't a catch-all verse for whatever you're trying to accomplish. Like every other verse in Scripture, uh, this verse ultimately needs to be <coughs> understood in this context. Excuse me for a second. <clears throat> so Paul is talking about learning to be content whenever God has placed him in his service. That's what Paul's talking about here. So when Paul says all things, Paul is saying all these things. So he, he wasn't trying to win a Super Bowl. He wasn't trying to uh, be an entrepreneur and launch a new success story company overnight, okay? As a matter of fact, Paul was actually the epitome of our modern notion of failure. Think about it. I mean, Paul was in jail. He was poor. He was hungry. And now he was saying, I can do all these things through Jesus who strengthens me. And yet, in spite of all of this, he was content because Christ was the source of his strength. You know, during this time, Paul leaned heavily into Jesus. It's how he got through it. See, Paul trusted in Christ's resurrection power. You know, if you go back to chapter 3 of Philippians, Paul says that he wanted to know Christ, and he wanted to know the power of his resurrection. You know, Paul, Paul, Paul learned that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that same resurrection power was available to every follower of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. And so I think the question that many of us were asking this morning is, how do we tap into that power? How do we receive Christ's strengths? Well, let me just say it this morning. It comes from knowing Christ Jesus and living in glad surrender to Christ Jesus. Do you know the catalyst for Christ's power is always surrender? And I know that seems backward. I know that seems like counterintuitive. But that's ultimately how God's kingdom works. I mean, Paul said this. He says, when I am weak, then I am strong. So strength comes to us through full surrender. Well, what, well then the question is this. Is what, well, what is glad surrender? Well, surrender essentially says two things. First of all, surrender says, I give you control. Second, it says, I can't do this without you. So it's a posture of submission on one hand, but it's also a posture of dependency on the other. And both of them are necessary if we want to see God's power catalyzed in our lives. See, you, God doesn't put gas in your tank if God can't ultimately drive the steering wheel of your life. So you, can't, you have to have, let God change you if you are going to actually receive God's power to change you. So when you're willing to follow Jesus in glad obedience, and when you come to that point where you admit, I can't do it on my own, God, I need your help, those two forces coming together in our lives, those two postures, is when you will experience the resurrection power of Jesus in your life. And I, and I wonder today, I mean, how many of you have done that? Maybe you're here today, and, and for the first time in your life, you finally feel, I'm ready. I'm ready to surrender my life to Christ. And let me encourage you to, to receive Jesus into your life, to receive him as your Lord and Savior. And, and you can do that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've come from. Christ Jesus offers himself to you every single day. And so maybe today is the day when you, you will just, again, for the first time, or maybe again, because you need to, just ultimately surrender yourself to Jesus and say to him, Jesus, I... I give you full control of my life. And Jesus, I need you. I need your power 
to change. Surrender is the catalyst for the, for the working of God's power in our lives. Now, it's, it's interesting, and I just want to make this final note. It's worth, it's worth noting that Paul didn't just trust Jesus in the hard times. Jesus was his source of strength in the good times and the bad. Paul says, I, I've, I've learned this, whether I'm hungry or satisfied, whether I'm humbled or exalted, it doesn't matter. I'm leaning on Christ in all times. His dependency on Christ was constant. See, here's the thing is when we're suffering, oftentimes it's easy for us to blame God. But when we're thriving, often it's easy for us to forget God. So C.S. Lewis once wrote this in his book, The Problem of Pain. Here's what he said. He says, we regard God as an airman regards his parachute. It's there for emergencies, but he hopes he'll never have to use it. Paul learned to lean on Christ in every season, in the good times and in the bad, which is what a spiritually mature disciple of Jesus does. They trust Jesus in all things. Well, here's the last key. Contentment ultimately comes by flourishing in generosity. Here's what Paul discovered. When we excel at generosity, first of all, it loosens our grip on our stuff. And this ultimately leads contentment. But we also experience the blessing that comes from helping other people. Uh, this is the point Paul was making in verse 17. Here's what he says. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Now, Paul wasn't being ungrateful to the Philippians. And at first blush, it might seem like he was being a little bit ungrateful to him uh, for their generosity. And that, that's not the point he was making. The point that Paul was making is that he didn't actually just need their gift in order to be content. Remember, his inner peace wasn't tied to his need or the fulfillment of that need. His contentment ultimately came from Christ. It didn't come from the gifts that he received. But Paul was actually more excited about what the gift meant for the Philippians than it, did, than it did for himself. I mean, he wanted them to experience the blessings that come from being generous. That's what he meant when he says, the fruit that increases to your credit. So, and, and you might have noticed here that like Paul, is, Paul is using some sort of accounting terminology. Um, notice that he calls the Philippians partners in his kingdom work, or he also sees them as, as investors who will receive increases as a result of their investment. The point that Paul's trying to make here is this, is, is that when you give to God's kingdom work, you're partnering in that work, but you're also an investor who will receive dividends as a result of that. And the ROI, the return on investments for God's work, for participating in God's work, is ultimately it's off the charts. So, so what is this fruit that Paul speaks of? Well, it first means the lives of those who've been transformed as a result of the gift. If you, if you roll back in, into Paul's letter early, earlier on, Philippians chapter 1, Paul talks about his fruitful labor. What was the fruit of Paul's labor? The fruit of Paul's labor were all of the lives that were transformed through the power of the gospel while Paul was in prison. And it was also the lives of the Philippians who would be changed if Paul had a chance to leave prison and, and go and visit them. So fruitful labor, the fruit of Paul's labor, were the lives that were transformed by the power of the gospel. So let's make this really practical. Let, let's say, for example, that you make a very generous donation to an organization that, that Crosspoint partners with uh, to, for Freedom International. Okay, so you, you, you make a, a significant financial donation to this organization. When you give to this organization, you are essentially partnering with this organization in the gospel. You become partners together, co-laborers. But you also are investing in God's kingdom work. And so the question we might ask is, 
Is that a good investment? I mean, what's the ROI? What's the return on the investment for that kind of an investment by giving to For Freedom International? Well, you have to consider the fruit of their ministry, for one. I mean, we've already heard that a number of girls have been rescued from sexual exploitation as a result of the good work they're doing in Thailand. Uh, these girls who would normally have been giving their bodies to strangers dozens of times every single day have now been uh, released from that and set free. Um, not only are they rescued, they're given housing, uh, they're given career training, um, they're given counseling, and many have also received Christ into their lives. And as a result of that, they're experiencing spiritual healing and transformation. And I think the question we have to ask is, how do you put a price tag on that? Really, at the end of the day, how do you put a price tag on, on all that Jesus is doing through this ministry to change and to transform their lives? As far as I can tell, that is a pretty good investment. That's fruitful labor. That's fruit that increases to our credit. And when we contribute to that and we know what they're doing, the return to us is this, this sense of blessing that we are participating with God in his redemptive work in the world and lives are being shaped and transformed by that. Now, Paul, Paul also goes on, though, to describe other dividends that result from kingdom generosity. The first of them, he says, is, well, also, God is pleased. But second of all, God provides. And so I want to walk, continue walking through the text. I mean, let's look at verse 18. Paul says that their gift was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So the imagery here is of the Old Testament sacrificial system. So when an acceptable uh, sacrifice was given to God in the Old Testament system, uh, the fragrance of the offering was often described as a pleasing aroma to God. So giving, when we give, uh, and however we give to God's kingdom work, whenever we give, it, it's not just a financial obligation. It's not just a simple transaction. It, it's not like goods and services that we receive as a result of us giving towards something, okay? Giving, ultimately, when we give to God's work, ultimately is worship. So when we, when we, and when we generously give to God's work, and we do it from a cheerful heart, ultimately it pleases God. And when we bless God, something happens in our relationship with God where we too feel blessed. And this is because ultimately we're living according to our design. I mean, did you know that you were made in the image of God? He created you in his image. And through the power of Christ in your life, he is continuing to transform you into his image. Our God is a generous God. He's abundantly generous, and he's demonstrated this through Jesus Christ and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians 5, it talks about Christ's sacrifice as a fragrant offering to God. Okay, so when we live generous lives just like Jesus was, we are living according to our purpose. We are living according to our design. We are experiencing the ultimate expression of human freedom. Human freedom is not an absence of constraints, but rather human freedom is the ability to live according to what we were designed to do. And when we live according to what we were designed to do, the end result is blessing. Blessing. We're living according to the way God has designed us. So generously giving to God's kingdom work, it pleases him, and we are blessed as a result. But there's a second dividend. Not only is God pleased, but God provides. I want us to look at what it says in verse 19. Here's what it says. It says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, if you want another coffee cup verse that is often misunderstood and that is often pulled out of context, 
Here it is, okay? Uh, now, some think that this verse is, it means that God is, is kind of like a magic genie, right? Uh, whatever you need, whatever you wish for, just name it, just claim it. You know, if you want a car, if you want a condo, if you want a pony, it doesn't matter, okay? Ask for it, you shall receive. God will open up his infinite treasure trove and provide for you whatever it is that you're looking for. Now, again, we need to understand this verse in its context. First of all, this verse is written to those who are actively supporting God's kingdom work. The Philippians were supporting Paul. And what, he's, what he seems to be saying here is that as we are generous and participating in God's work in the world through generosity, as we do that, God supplies our needs. So you ultimately, you can't claim verse 19 if you aren't obeying verses 14 to 18. We are blessed in order that we might be a blessing. I'm, I'm reminding of this principle from Proverbs chapter 11, verse 25. Here's what it says. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Notice also that it says, it says that God will provide every need, but it doesn't say that God will provide every greed. So it's, it's, it's what you want is not always what you need. And most of us understand that. Sometimes, though, we, we have a little bit of trouble uh, telling the difference between wants and needs. You know, I recently read of a, of a study from the late 19th century. And sociologists asked Americans what they believed were the basic needs of life. At the end of the study, they concluded there were 16 basic needs that every American needed for life. Well, in more recent years, they conducted the same study a random study with Americans, and here's what they discovered. The number had jumped. The number had jumped from 16 basic needs to 98 basic needs that Americans need for life. Which means that our wants are sometimes a little bit objective, uh, subjective. And, and sometimes it's quite easy for us to blur the lines between what we want and what we need. I don't know about you if that's true, but I know that that's true for me. I think the point that Paul is trying to make is that we can trust God to, make, to meet our needs, not our wants. So because of that, we can be generous with other people. And we can do that without fear or without worry that somehow we're going to be on the losing end of this. This is what generosity ultimately does, friends. Generosity teaches us to loosen our grip on our stuff. And it teaches us to trust God. And when that happens, it ultimately leads to contentment. Generosity is one of the greatest keys that we'll ever find in our lives to living a contented life. So let me close with three questions this morning. First of all, do you need contentment today? I mean, what would it look like for you to turn your focus away from the other circumstances that are around you and to turn your attention towards Christ? Maybe today is the day where you can fully surrender your life to Jesus in glad delight, so that Jesus becomes your strength and, and Jesus becomes your supply. And, and, and can you trust God to meet your needs today so that you can extend generosity towards other people? Well, I want to I pray with you. Um, and after that, I want to give us an opportunity to pray together uh, wherever we are. So you might be home by yourself. You might be there with other people. And our practice at Crosspoint is to pray together in community. So even though we're you know, in different places all over the map uh, and, and we're not in the same room together as we love to do, we can still pray together. And the same spirit, the spirit of the Lord, 
um, is with each and every one of us. And so we gather in Jesus' name online and we pray together. And so we're going to put some uh, prayer requests up on the screen. You have about four minutes for a time of prayer. And we, we encourage you to pray with us about these needs uh, this morning. Um, after that, we're gonna, we'll, we'll have a time of Q&A, uh, but I'll, I'll also dismiss us and give you a little bit of announcements. But why don't, we, why don't I pray with you right now? I'll ask you to pray with me, and then I'm going to get you to just find some people in your room or just pray yourself uh, for the needs that we have. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your posture of generosity and sacrifice towards us. And thank you for loving us. And thank you, Lord, that um, you can give us the strength we need in this time. And we can find that you are our source, you are our supply, and you are our strength. And so, God, uh, we just surrender ourselves to you afresh today. And we say, God, I need you. And we say, God, take control of our lives. Thank you for your word that's living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, that divides soul and spirit, bone and marrow, that pierces our hearts and brings us to life. We thank you for your word. And we give you thanks now in Jesus' name. Amen. I encourage you to take a moment and pray together.
Well, thank you for praying with us this morning. Uh, Maybe you're at home and you need um, maybe more specific prayer, and you would love for some people to pray with you. Uh, Just encourage you to to, uh, go to the options that are there available, um, or to go to our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca slash PR, and let us know about your prayer requests, and we would be more than happy to uh, pray with you for whatever need you have. Also, if you're you're looking to connect, I encourage you to fill in that online connecting card that's available for you there. Uh, Also, just want to encourage you to to connect with us in any other way that's available online, and we would love to help you get connected as part of our Crosspoint community. Uh, I want to announce that next week we're starting a new teaching series, and I'm looking forward to this new teaching series. We are going to be working through the book of Amos, and that's amazing to me because I've never preached through a minor prophet before. Let's be honest, a number of you, you maybe find yourself skimming through or working very quickly through the minor prophets of the Old Testament. Well, we're going to do a deep dive into the book of Amos over a number of weeks, and I think that Amos has a lot to teach us as we walk through it, particularly in the time and the season we find ourselves in. So the series is called Check Engine, Listening, Warning, and Hope from the Prophet Amos. So I hope that you'll uh, jump in with us uh, next week as we do this series together. Um, Okay, well, in a moment, we're going to do Q&A, and uh, some of you have already started to text in some questions. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to get to them all, but I hope to do that this morning. The number is 780-217-4009. But before we get into Q&A, let me just give this benediction for those of you who are going to uh, move on to other pursuits at this time. Let me remind you of who you are. You are the people of God. You are called by God into his redemptive mission in the world. So be who you are, wherever you are. Love you guys. God bless. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.